Break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. Well, hello, everybody. This is the episode that comes with the number 76. This is episode number 76, and it is the episode about UX. Fuck, marry, kill. And I want to thank our guest this evening, Tim Broadwater, for letting me get to the F-bomb faster than I've ever gotten to it in any episode to date. And I will probably never get there faster. We will be talking about Tim's book this evening and sharing some little nuggets from that and, and hopefully introducing you to a new little uh, tome to add to your shelf. Uh, and for the most part, anyway, today, I am your host, Michael Feenan. I'm your other, other host, Aaron Hill. How you doing, Michael? Um, I'm doing quite all right. It's uh, getting into the November times. The weather is still holding up here for us a little bit. It's windy, but hey, I'm going to take it. Folks, if you want to uh, help out the show and our sponsors, be sure to run by the kind folks over at the Live at Manning Conference Series. Their next conference is going to be coming up on December 1st. It will be from 12 to 5 p.m. Uh, over on Twitch. This is the Math for Data Science Conference. They're going to be talking about data science, they're going to be talking about AI, machine learning, cryptography, other programmatic fields, and all the ways that math factors into that, which I know sounds kind of boring, but anybody who works in these areas knows that when when you sat in, in class, you know, back in middle school, high school, and always asked, why do I need to know all this math stuff? When am I ever going to use it? Anybody in our fields knows we use it a lot. So, And I, I think we'll even probably give you some examples tonight of why uh, you need some math in your life as a UX person. So I, I've run... always thought that math is a lot more interesting when you see its application. Like when you see like what you can do with math, then it's like, oh. Right. It also makes a lot more sense, right? Like, yeah, yeah. In, in, in context, math makes a whole lot more sense. Um, granted, I haven't had a math class since high school, so I don't have a whole lot of room to talk, but I do use it an awful lot. Um, but run by, if you want to get a, a ticket to the conference, it is a free online conference. Go to drunkenux.com slash math, M-A-T-H. That will get you a link over to their registration portal and sign up, and we hope to see you there. You can check us out on Facebook and Twitter.com slash drunkenux and Instagram.com slash podcast and on drunkenux.com slash Discord if you want to come chat with us about things. What are you drinking tonight? I've got. Um, I, th the, I think uh, I saw a Scotch bottle. I don't know. Yeah, it's a Balvenie, uh, the American oak cask. I think I had it in the last episode too. That's okay, pretty good. Nice. I'm a I'm simple man tonight. I'm just doing a Pepsi and rum. Mm -hmm. Very straightforward. I I'm not like I don't I don't mind like a, a rum and coke. I mm -hmm. guess I should say rum and Pepsi in in that instance. Um, rum and coke's fine, but I'm just a Pepsi drinker, so that's what mm -hmm. I have cola wise, and uh, it, it's the same. It doesn't matter. It's a little sweeter than <laughs> Coke, whatever. Um, this evening, we are joined by Mr. Tim Broadwater. If you aren't familiar with Tim, he is the senior UX software design engineer over at Lidos. He's also formerly the senior UX designer at Dick's Sporting Goods. He's got UX certs from MIT and Nielsen Norman. He's got uh, he's an MFA alumnus from SCAD. He's worked uh, with creating UX quackery, simple usability stir fry, tips for UX battles. This dude is the real world UX unicorn. He's also the author of the book we'll be going through tonight, UX, Fuck, Mary Kill. Tim, thanks for joining us this evening. We appreciate you sitting down and, and uh, agreeing to take uh, the, uh, the, the cross-examination that we plan on <laughs> doing tonight. 
<laughs> oh no! <laughs> Wait, uh, it's well, it's fuck Mary kill. I thought it was FSCK Mary kill. Like I thought that was about Linux file system checking. No, no, this is way different. I don't know which book you read, but now I'm concerned about the report that you've prepared for me. I may need to reread the first section then. Um, well, we'll we'll <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll handle the first section. You can come in on the back too. <laughs> so, UX FMK is a book full of uh, anecdotes with a theme, obviously, um, for each section to help people learn about user experience and where they fit into that world, what they should be thinking about, especially as they enter the workforce. And so I thought this would be a great time to have people or have Tim come on and talk about how this relates to the way people will work. So, Tim, let me start with the most obvious question, which is, why'd you write the book? <laughs> yeah, so um, I kind of um, was, you know, work from uh, partially work remote, like Tuesdays and Thursdays at my current job. But I think like once COVID-19 hit, I kind of migrated to full work from home. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think I was just crazy. Um, like here, nine months later, um, I was just like, I got to do something to constructive and, you know, to occupy my time. But Keep then, your sanity a little bit, ground you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I think um, what I've been doing a lot and you know at the exporting goods and at lidos has been more of a like a mentor role to like junior uxers and so um uxers being like ux practitioners that's my abbreviation or so the book is really kind of written to that lessons learned um it's kind of in the vein of um design as a job like from mike montero or um just kind of like these are the mistakes I've made in my life and the things that I've learned and let me kind of put those together and if it helps uh, people who are now coming into the field um, great because I think you could kind of dodge a lot of bullets um, you know create some uh, good long-term habits and then hopefully put you know your don't put your foot in your mouth all the time. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Don't shoot yourself in the foot, whatever the metaphor is. You know? I think uh, both Aaron and I have emphasized more than our fair share throughout uh, these last uh, three seasons about the importance of mentorship and the importance of mm -hmm. taking the things we've learned over the last 20 years and making sure that that gets passed on because there's, there are so many of those lessons that are really hard to learn in practice and not hard from like a difficulty standpoint but just like taxing you know to go through those experiences and if we can save people some of that headache i think there's a lot of it was a whole lot of value to that is either the last episode or the one before that we were talking about how when you and i started that was when kind of the industry was also starting and so we all kind of grew together and so we learned all the stuff along the way kind of organically but the people entering the workforce now, it's like, this is a fully mature industry, and it's so fucking complicated. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's a lot to learn, and, and I, it, I, the mentorship is absolutely necessary. It reminded me a little bit of um, the remote book by Jason Fried and DHH um, that came out a few years ago. Or no, sorry, not, oh no, yeah, it was remote. The, the, the book about tele, telecommuting. Yeah. 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 The, that was the, remote. Yeah. Yeah. The style reminded me a bit of that. 
it's so the, the structure of this is basically set up with each you know themed section fuck marry kill with 20 sort of lessons um for lack of a better term uh, chapters whatever each one's a page page and a half long um which makes them very quick to get through if it's something you know you can skip that section real quick and know you're not going to miss a ton um which makes it real nice to just sit down with in the evenings um, I want to start at the very start of this book because one of the very first things that you jump to is uh, something I don't, I don't think we've actually talked about it nearly enough on this show, which is what the difference is between UI and UX. Um, I, I'm i a big fan of the way there's an article at Usability Geek um, from Alan Smith. He's got the three big differences, and I like his breakdown of it. Um, it's about UX dealing with purpose and functionality. UI dealing with design and artistic componentry and UX focusing on project management and analysis. But Tim, I want to pitch it over to you because the way you break into it is also, I think, I mean, it's, it's that same thing basically. And, and getting people to understand why, why do these words, the, or these acronyms, UI, user interface, UX, user experience, why do these things get mashed together? So, you know, one of the things I've been working in software as a product or software as a service now for over 10 years, right? And I think if it doesn't matter if I'm working with a business analyst or um, a product manager or a product owner or developer, um, and it doesn't, I think, matter from all the people I've talked to around the country in UX, um, it doesn't seem to matter if you're East Coast, West Coast, North or South, <laughs> metropolitan, rural, there still seems to be this general... Um, the terms are almost used interchangeably, or it's like people don't want to be offensive and they say UI UX, like <laughs> to try to put them together. So they, they know that, you know, that it doesn't, oh, well, if you consider yourself a designer, I didn't mean to offend. Or if you, if you do research, you know, I, I did a tie the design, you know, not to. So uh, I think it's one of those things to where, like you said, the book is written in such a way you can just go to the table of contents, find a snippet that you want to learn about and it's one page right um and i don't think people need to read through the whole thing a friend of mine said like oh i haven't started it yet because i can't i want to finish it all at once and i'm like well it's not even really designed that way literally just look in the table of contents and go to that page and you're done you don't have to read more than that but in that section specifically um it's the general uh the general kind of definition for um exactly as you described it you know ui just generally kind of refers to um, the aesthetics the fonts the colors the actual pieces of the user interface um, whereas ux is how is the user interacting with it so kind of the experience and yeah. i work with developers who are senior lead senior principal devs who've been doing it for 20 some years and um there's a guy I worked with who I just kind of worked on a small project with for six weeks. And he was like, Hey, I didn't even really know until working with you on this project that really what UX was about. Um, I always just kind of coupled it with like, Oh, this is CSS. This is front end like CSS frameworks. So it's just kind of to get that verbiage. And I think being able to speak to it to where you're going to get so disheartened in a meeting. If someone just kind of reduces you to Photoshop. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it happens. It's just like, oh, you make pretty pictures, you're off in the corner and you color and that's what you do. Um or maybe even they um, you know, 
give you one more bump of respect and say like, okay, you can, you know, some CSS or some CSS preprocessors, right? Um, but it's just, uh, I, I don't think they see the user data and user research side of it. So let's start digging into some of these because the, the very first thing that I pulled out, I think feeds a lot into this. So in, in the fuck section, fuck number three, I'm going to really enjoy tonight's episode. I can already tell. I'm going <laughs> yeah, to get an explicit this. tag. <laughs> and, and the, yeah, explicit will be flagged on given. this episode to say the least. Uh, number three is what the fuck am I doing? The reason I brought this one out is because it, what the fuck am I doing? Um, Tim writes about uh, the importance or not necessarily the importance, but the necessity that you'll run into of wearing multiple hats. And this idea that you may come into it thinking you're going to, if you're a UX researcher, you're going to do UX research and nothing else, but you may discover very quickly that you have to do significantly more than that because that's how jobs work. Um, we yeah. we used to call it the other duties as assigned you know, kind of thing. <laughs> other tasks as needed. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's the truth. Yeah, so I, I've been on teams before to where, you know, maybe the product owner doesn't have a lot of experience. And um and they don't really know, like maybe they can run a sprint really well, but when it comes to like, hey, let's get the whole team in front of a whiteboard and start facilitating like design thinking about, hey, how could we improve this? And then how do we validate all those ideas to see which has the most merit to a user? That's a role or a function that some product owners want to do themselves. Um, but I've had to step in as a UXer to facilitate design thinking before. And the the thing that I think starts to, you know, or that people will figure out is you may get into user experience for the research. You may, that may be your bread and butter. You want to dig the analytics. You want to run the tests and crunch those numbers. But the problem is in a lot of places and a lot, even big companies, you may be the only UX person on that team. You don't have a, a whole UX office necessarily where this multiple hats thing comes from, okay, cool, you're a UX researcher, but they don't have a UX engineer, they don't have a UX writer, they don't have a UX designer, they don't have any of those other components that start to like fill out, um, I've got a, a poster somewhere, I'll, I need to find it, it's got, it's like one of those honeycomb type charts that show all of these job roles, <laughs> and kind of how they, how the gravity of them pulls them together and overlap. Um, oh, and cool. the number of things that are considered UX is huge and they're going to hire one person, not 12. So it will be, it will be out of necessity. And this is true. This is true outside of UX. Like there is nothing you will ever do at a job where you don't have to get a little outside your zone. Um, and that doesn't mean do everything. Um, because you know, what is, what does they say? Um, it's jack of all trades, master of none, but always yeah. better than a master of one. Yeah. yeah. I always, I say I'm a reservoir. I'm a mile wide, but only about three foot deep in a lot of areas. Uh, That's the Renaissance person too. Like when they talk mm -hmm. about a, a Renaissance person being like, you know, having a little bit of knowledge of a lot of different things, you know? Think about like if you went into like a, a good old fashioned old school woodworker shop. Now that woodworker mm -hmm. may be a master carver and, and, be amazing at, at carving furniture and, and doing reliefs, but he's making whole pieces of furniture. And 
you could go in there and you have your carving tools and a chop saw and some glue and be good to go. But the reality is he's also going to have a lathe. He's also going to have a planer and a joiner and all of these other tools. Even though he's a carver and that is where he shines, his furniture is still amazing because he's brought these other tools that are directly related to his job into his fold. So that's where I see that value. When you wear multiple hats, it's not about trying to do other people's jobs. It's about bringing tool sets to your work that make you better. And I think, you know, your scenario is an apt one because I have been, you know, um, the only UXer on a team before. And it's not just that you have to wear so many hats because it's in the job description. It wasn't in the job description. Um, more <laughs> it <never> so is. <laughs> no, no. And essentially, you know, it's out of necessity, right? To where, um, you know, we don't have a person who writes CSS. We don't have a person who conducts, who writes usability studies or conducts them. We don't have a person who visualize and presents that data um, and informs findings. Um, and so I think even if you look at like the UX honeycomb, right, um, it has those seven kind of pieces to it. Um, I think that's kind of um, accessibility is kind of wrapped in there. Yeah. I, I don't, I've never worked at a, a place and, and I've worked at a bunch of Fortune 500s that had an accessibility team. They all, it kind of like always kind of landed onto UX to do that. Um, but then also, if you, in the honeycomb, there's kind of findability information architecture, you know, people are going to sometimes look at you and say like, I don't know what our navigation should be. You know, what's the guidance for that? Number four um, is the next one on my list. So right after number three, because that's the way numbers work is, fuck, I don't know what to do to find out an answer. Uh, Tim, I'm going to tell you, after I read through this, almost the next day, I cited this exact chapter twice in two different discussions <laughs> at work um, because it's it gets thrown around a lot. And I, and I liked this argument. So what it does is you, you set up this uh, this sort of straw man of we know X. Well, we know users do this or we know, you know, this is happening in the business. And you say, how do you know that? What is the information that? leads you to believe that, that, you know, because uh, how often do you say, well, I heard from a user, right? Well, I heard from a user that, that they couldn't log in. I heard from a user, they couldn't find this page. Um, <laughs> and the higher up the food chain you go in a, in a company, when, you know, a VP or a president or somebody comes in and says, I heard that they couldn't use this. Well, okay, we, we know that now, but how well do we know that? And that, that's the sort of extension that I like to kind of think about is cool we know something how do we know it well we heard it from somewhere so how well do we really know that which leads you to that basis of cool let's make those tests let's set up that research to now go and dig into that i i love that question actually like i think that you know i love it when people come to me with weird <laughs> crazy things like we don't know why this is happening or or we think this is happening or or um we have wismo calls that are from you know customers calling in and we just seem to have an uptick for this and we have no idea why and it's like i don't know either but we can find out you know <laughs> let's we can design parameters for a study you know we can look at um uh that's where it kind of you i think you look at 
like the mountain of user data and user research and figure out, okay, do we already have data that answers this? And if not, how can we write a study to get this? And to me, those kind of uh, challenging, you know, kind of questions or um, not, not knowing exactly why something's happening, that's kind of the, the Scooby-Doo mystery thing that I kind of want to yeah. tackle. Like, let's find out how it's, why, you know? I think one of the, the fun sort of qualities of, of good UX research is there's an art to finding the signal in the noise because my God, the amount of data a website is capable of generating that is useless, that is absolutely throwaway garbage information to know um, is mountainous. Um, and, and it takes a real steady hand and careful eye to understand how you pick out those really valuable threads and contextualize them in such a way that you're able to trust that, that answer. Um, and so that process I think is really interesting and I, I'm by no means a UX researcher, but I'm always fascinated by data um, and, and that kind of stuff. So that's, that's why I, like, I really loved that section um, just because it, it kind of gave me some ammunition to sit down and say, yeah, when somebody sits down and says, well, our users don't use it that way. Well, are we sure they don't? And why don't they? What's what's the motivation? You will hear it your entire career <laughs> from junior UXer or just like as a developer, as a product person. Um, the advice I would give, and, and it's kind of looped into that chapter, is um, be familiar with the tools of how to get the data and yeah. how to conduct the research. It doesn't mean you have to be a master at that tool. It just... Uh, means do you know where to get the data that you need mm. to answer that question or even where to start right data literacy yeah. is maybe the word i would apply to that like it knowing where to find the data is all one thing but then it's like now how do we make sure it's the right data that's telling because again the funny thing about data is you can make it say a lot of things depending on you know the way you bend it or the way you apply it and it's not necessarily a lie. You're not even intending to, you know, bias the data or anything, but data can be really sort of fungible in terms of the story it tells. And, and that literacy component, I think is really important to make sure that you're presenting an honest picture, I think of, of the stuff that you're trying to describe. Yeah. And I think I even give a shout out there to like Cheryl Paulson, because she has this, she like definitely feels, um, the problem that other like junior UXers or even seasoned UXers encounter to where it's like, I don't know what type of, st if we don't have metrics or server side logs or analytics for this, what do we do? And it's like, well, she actually for UXers invented this like step-by-step -step process, um, which is Rubik. Um, and she, you can find it on her site that asks you questions like she UX is the UX method, which is amazing in my mind. Um, so he asks you as a UXer, like, well, what is it you're trying to do? Are you trying to test a design or do you have data or not? And then from that, that kind of pick a path stories or some adventure path stories or select a path, whatever that is. Um, and says like, okay, you selected this. Now, are you trying to prove something or are you trying to test something new? And then when you select that, you know, it, it kind of takes you down this path and it tells you. Um, you know, what type of test that you should conduct, or maybe it's just, this is a focus group. You can get this from a focus group or, or essentially this is a survey and you need 250 people to confirm it. So let's hit the last one here on the uh, fuck chapter so we can get on to marrying uh, things. 
The follow-on to this section, I think, is then number 12. Why is it fucking important to know what success <laughs> looks like? Because that's sort of the culmination of all of this, right, is knowing if what you're doing is working and, and producing outcomes and um, understanding what success looks like to your business, I think, is important to sort of directing, you know, those those value scales. You may have multiple audiences, but those audiences are not necessarily equally valuable, even though they may make up equal components of your traffic. It's kind of a weird modality, but it's something, you know, in higher ed, uh, and Aaron, I think you'd agree with me, uh, mm -hmm. parents use <laughs> higher ed sites a lot, but we don't generally look at them as a valuable audience necessarily uh, for those sites. That That's, we, we've talked about it at length already, but the the issue of what audiences do you serve with your higher ed website is a faculty. A How important is the faculty <laughs> uh, traffic on your own front end website? Oh. Like, you, yeah, universities are such a weird case. Like it's very, it's consistent across universities, but it's also like anomalous as separate from other industries. Just with the diversification and consistent diversification of the audiences, or seg segmentation, segmentation. Yeah, so I the, that's a good point because I think, um, in how that ties into, you know, what does success look like? Um, I think you're going to be kind of in a situation to where, and I see a lot of things end in bloatware or vaporware this way mm -hmm. meaning like things that are just like hey we think users will like this feature let's add this or let's just add more and more and more <laughs> or um we didn't really have an endpoint or a roadmap or a direction so uh no one we didn't validate our product so then it just ends up on a shelf and becomes vaporware um, do you remember I, when like every product that could would have a music player feature added to it <laughs> remember that in like the early early mid 2000s like the, everything on, on the higher music. ed circuit, the one that jumps out at me is the weather widget, right? Yes, Remember when yes. every higher ed site yeah. had to have the weather <laughs> on their homepage? Here's here's a modern one for you that I think mm -hmm. applies to this idea of what you were just saying, Tim. You know, the idea of bloatware and and just doing a thing for reasons. Um, the new Twitter feature, fleets <sighs> that are releasing now that are. Sort of like a Instagram story, Facebook story do, kind do you of know, Do you know why bit. Twitter has them? Do you know the story behind that? There's an the, activist investor. I don't. There's an activist investor, the, the Elliott Management Group, and they said that one of the conditions of, they have like a, a large stake in the company now, as of this year, and they said that Twitter needed to get, uh, needed more innovation and needed to get contemporary with its competitors, which meant adding stories. And I, my first reaction, I saw that, that article was like, yes, nothing says innovation quite like copying all of your competitors. I, that, it, literally <laughs> what I was going to say. But, but then, like, but then someone else pointed out to me that stories are basically vines, which Twitter did invent first before anyone else did and then discontinued. So they did innovate it and decided they didn't need it. But this investor group decided like, oh no, you need it back. <laughs> it's all like, I don't know if like cannibalism is the word or like human centipede where you're just like <laughs> devouring your own features and then you're mm -hmm. and then it's copied and then you recopy it but if facebook owns instagram and <laughs> they're having stories i just like 
I just don't understand um, the merit in copying them. I, mm -hmm. I don't know. Except yeah. to just maybe we'll get more Instagram users if we um, include this feature in in Twitter. Uh, Will <laughs> fleets make Twitter a success? Tell us on on Twitter. <laughs> find us on Facebook. So let's talk about the next section. Next section is Mary. The first one that we pulled out was number five, which is "Marry Me." Screen the user. I think Aaron, did you add this one? I, yeah, I don't. I was I, like, I, I looked at this. I'm like, I remember this, but now I don't remember <laughs> if I wrote it or you wrote it. So it, I, I, the first item I put here was the quote from Steve Jobs that you used, which I loved, um, and that's why I picked this one. But a lot of the time, people don't know what they want until you show it to them, and and this reminds me of when I when I was first learning UX. Uh, I I just read Krug's book and I remember that when I was trying to f come up with my user interviews for some features we were building, I kept asking like, well, you know, what should we do here? Or like, what would you expect to see? Or something like that. And and I what I quickly realized was that most people aren't savvy enough or they're just, they the things, the things that they do know, like may not be appropriate. And or, or they expect to see feature bloat. It basically, like they're going to normalize whatever you're creating against their prior experience because most of their experience has been on other sites. That's what Nielsen's law, right? Yeah. Um, and so I I learned that instead, what I have to do is kind of create the vision that I'm I want to try out and then see how it holds water with the user. And that, that's been a lot more effective than asking them to basically do my job for me. <laughs> yeah, I think um, the piece that's in that chapter is more is that, you know, let's absorb as much as we can. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean we're building everything. And I think it's um, like the, the sentiment, which is if we build everything that the user said, you know, well, we're going to have crap, you know, we can't, mm -hmm. it's going to ruin the product. Well, if we build everything, the product owner says it's going to be crap. If, if we build everything, the developers think it's going to be crap. So it's, what are we tempering by? Right. And then what, how mm -hmm. do we measure, well, this has real value or this across multiple users or mm -hmm. uh, this has impact versus. Um, it's the Homer Simpson car, right? <laughs> you put everything that the that they yeah. say in into your product, and you have everything. But uh, is what you have really that good? <laughs> <laughs> last or not last one? Next to last one. Um, did you marry the wrong test? This is Mary number seven. Um, uh, looking at like qualitative versus quantitative type stuff. I I like this. I'm a big fan of testing in general, and I really liked how you were comparing the qualitative and quantitative testing. Um, and it's, it's the sample size, I think, is what's really interesting. So in Steve Krug's Don't Make Me Think, he says, you know, for like doing user, user interviews or, or usability studies, like five, the, the first five people you run, the run through the battery will identify like 80% of your problems with whatever your design is. And so that would be, I think, what would fall under qualitative tests, right? And then, but the quantitative ones are like more statistical. So you have to have a larger sample size. And you cited 250. Is that like a, from your experience or is there like a mathematical reason for that? Or it's, it's both actually, because you actually, after five people in qualitative tests, which are maybe in-person moderated usability tests, um, you get diminishing returns. And then mm -hmm. with survey results, if you're just like, Hey, we just need to prove this one thing or, we need to find this. You get diminishing results after 250. 
And so, yeah. So let's say you're polling 250 undergraduate students um, who are uh, of a specific demographic and you're just wanting to know, hey, here's a top task ranking survey. Um, of these 20 things, rank them the top five that are most important to you and put them in that order. Um, after 250 students respond to it, you're not seeing any significant data differences. Huh. Um, it's just going to be percentage More point variances. Interesting. Cool. It, if folks, uh, you maybe seen this if you pay attention, to, like especially recently, you know, all the political polling that has gone on, and you may have noticed that a lot of the times those surveys always do around a thousand people, mm -hmm. nine eighty. 1100 1057 it's always in that range statistically it's because they've figured out that exactly what you're saying tim beyond that first thousand people as long as you're making sure that that thousand people is you know segmented properly that gives you the data you need that gives you the cross section that is statistically significant so that yeah if you want to get to 27 nines of accuracy yeah you're going to need you know <laughs> 33 million people, but mm -hmm. what that are we? level SREs? of accuracy just isn't necessary. <laughs> yeah, so the S word, it's that we, you both said, segmentation. I think that's the thing um, that a lot of... So this is your one of the mains as a UXer, um, junior all the way to you know senior principal or whatever. Um, sometimes you're going to work on products to where you're like, we don't have access to users or, <laughs> and you're just like, make it work. <laughs> it's like this kind of moment, or it's like, our users are so difficult. We have very limited time with, them. so let's say our users are nurse managers. Like we literally have to pay them an insane amount of money to take one hour off the clock, or maybe they're active duty soldiers and we have to actually go on base to talk to them because we're not going to get them otherwise. Um, in those cases, segmentation is super important and and i think you know if you're trying to what is it you're trying to find out are you trying to actually find out for um kind of using the undergraduate student model for higher education is like okay so undergraduate students but we want new students so we want 16 to 20 year olds and we want them from a specific, we don't want them in-state students. We want them out-of-state students. And then let's say we also want to specifically target, you know, certain majors or so on. I, I think you can do more on the front end in writing the test or doing the segmentation than trying to feel like we need to get 5,000 responses because, um, because of those diminishing returns. I think, and that's where segmentation kind of plays into that and helps. The last Mary, I I couldn't not include this one, is number 11. Oh, yeah. Marry your craft in front of personas. Uh, anybody who's listened to the show more than a couple times knows uh, how I like to close it out. And, uh, making You're sure thinking about it, too. Yeah, making sure that personas work their way into conversations. Uh, you know, setting up, especially if you're taking the time, you know, for instance, you're testing 250 people. You've got this huge, uh, huge selection of personalities and skill sets and and technology stacks take all that you can take all that information and start building people fake people that can represent those folks so that when you need to make decisions six months down the road your guys can point to alice up on the wall um, i've seen people take like the the michael jordan cardboard cutouts that we had as kids with the the six foot uh, uh measuring stick on the side 
and stick somebody else's persona sheet on the face of it <laughs> to represent like an actual stand-in. You need a stand-in <laughs> for a discussion. So you literally bring the stand-in in and stick the persona's face on it um, and say, okay, well, what about Evan over here? You know, how would he react to that as somebody who, you know, is colorblind or has a, a Mac instead of windows or whatever the case may mm. be. So that's, that's all I had to say about that. Like I just, I, always value a conversation about personas whenever you start talking about you know anything ux or decision making wise you should keep those topics close michael yeah <laughs> i do my best i always try to get to real data personas and start provisional and i and i speak to that a little bit but essentially if you don't have any demographics or data on your user and you're and you're saying like we think this is what you know hmm. like in a healthcare product like there are so many users in healthcare products that um, who's our post-acute care nurse and who's our post-acute account rep and who's the hmm. general doctor and who's the assigned caseworker and who's all this kind of, right? It's just nuts. And so then it becomes, well, what do we think we know about these people, which is those kind of facts, problems, needs, and goals and behaviors. But then, hey, when we start having user interviews or user shadowing or we can survey them or we have um, analytics starting to come in to get age demographics or uh, things like that, then we can start replacing them with actual data, you know? And, and so they become even more real. And I think it's the dirty P word <laughs> a lot of times <laughs> that, uh, that people feel like this is a pointless activity. And it's just like, uh, well, then you're, I, you may be missing the point or, or, hmm. or they never get, you're like, hey, we spent time making them in Confluence, and then we never looked at them. And there's, <laughs> I, I think you're right that especially, you know, convincing people who don't get it as to why it's important um, is a skill unto itself at that point. And um, when folks say, well, we can just, we'll just, let's just look at Google Analytics. We'll just see what they look like in there. Um, and it's, it's about something bigger, bigger than that. It's about facilitating those conversations and making sure that the user is first and you do that through that creation process and that uh, facilitation process. If you, if you're not familiar with creating personas, um, I think it's usability.gov has got like a whole template. You can just go download and use, they've got several example uh, personas there. So you can kind of see how they do it, but you're not bound to any of that. You can build your persona in a way that is valuable to you and has the information that matters to you as a decision maker or designer or whatever. Um, but do it, um, whatever it takes, even if it's just for your own use, um, take that time and make some, you know what you were talking about the manufactured personas thing. You know what that reminds me of is how, when someone says millennial, like what age do you think of? Right. <laughs> Fair, yeah. <laughs> like they're approaching 40. But most people when they say millennial, they're talking about like like twenty something college students still, and it's like my dude, they've been out of college for a while. <laughs> um, the last section of your book uh, is called "Kill," uh, because that is the way the game works. You have to pick one to fuck, pick one to marry, pick one to kill, and these were our picks to kill. Number five uh, is one of Aaron's, which is killing heuristic biases, uh, which has to do with how you're building your teams and and structuring yourself and hiring. Well, you, in the book you were talking about, like you talked about hiring and about how like if your team is all like if everyone on your team is a Stanford grad, software engineer, super smart specialist guy, 
and they're all the same, then the product you get is going to probably homogenize around a specific set of bias, biases, um, which is what you were calling heuristic biases, right? Heuristic yeah, bias. yeah. And so essentially, I think, you know, if in your example, uh, like all of those people are like, oh, we all we ever do is unit test and this is how code has to be written and these mm -hmm. are the way that we report time and, and tackle tasks. And it's like, well, who on your team is doing something different? Or who on your team is mm -hmm. thinking of something different? Or who's pushing the bar? Or is anyone pushing the bar? <laughs> you mentioned someone who speaks three languages and juggles. Yeah. And I was like, like, I'm sure that there's something in both of those two, like, skills that would be applicable in, like, in, in anything, really. But, like, especially, like, in app development. There, there, I know there will be relevance somehow. Yeah, so I... I <laughs> You can't I've do those actually, things and not learn something. That's amazing. How can you not hire a juggler who speaks three <laughs> different languages? Okay, so A, that, right? But then B, like, if they meet the, the minimum level of what you're looking for the job, but then you find out in the course of an interview, like, oh, wow, there's, there's all this other variety and skill sets and experience they can bring. Um, and then everyone's like, no, we just, we don't feel it's a good fit. They're not like the rest. And it's like, mm. it just makes me feel like one of us. One yeah, of yeah. us. There's, there's <laughs> nobody challenging, you know, the decisions you're making then. Um, Aaron, you've talked about this actually, about, you know, when you are the new developer and mm. that process of like pair coding and things like that, that gives an opportunity to raise questions and ask, well, yeah, why is have, this done this way? You have why? the new the new programmer eyes for the first like two months when when everything is shit and everything nothing makes sense um and like that is such a golden period because you haven't yet like internalized all of the cruft and so everything stands out really brightly and it's just terrible <laughs> but there's like great opportunities like that's that's the time you need to hire someone and then be like all you're working on is identifying technical debt that's all you're doing so or documentation i mean yeah how oh well we only write documentation this way because everyone on the team understands x y or z and it's like mm -hmm. but what if you have a new person who, who <laughs> has no idea you know yeah i thought of one other kind of extension of that like you talked about hiring practices and you talked about um like uh the development itself um and i think that also, like when you're doing your usability like tests and your user interviews, um, we have to be careful like when when we're doing the que like, coming up with the questions and coming up with how we're approaching the problem that we like understand and consider our own like cultural and ability and experience biases that we may have. I think that happens a lot actually, and I think it comes down to which. I don't know. One of the buzzwords right now, I think, in the UX community is abusability testing, hmm. um, which I is like that. yeah, which is like, can you just give me enough freaking time to see if someone can use our product for evil, or like, or someone can get <laughs> is is maybe using it in a way that's we didn't even think of because we didn't have time, you know? There's to, a a meme a meme ish thing I've seen where it's like uh, the the top is like the design and the bottom is the users and it's the design is this nice clean little uh three cat bowl uh like cat water bowls uh in a little holder in the corner 
and then the users are the cats and like one of them's standing on it one of them's in, drinking out of the middle one the other one's drinking out of the left one but is standing over the cat in the middle uh, like three cats and they didn't just walk up and each take a bowl they're all yes it's it, that's what that makes me think of though to think about the the user aspect of that kill number nine is kill yourself if you think you're the user which this takes me back to i think season one when we did the yeah. 10ux commandments it was um, number one, one right yeah i think number, number one, one you are not yeah. the user yeah uh, like everybody <laughs> thinks of that when they think about ux and we all have made that mistake i think in terms of like well i would do it this way so i know how this works that's good mm -hmm. enough i remember being a new developer too michael <laughs> <laughs> Oh, new UXer, new designer, new product yeah. person. I feel I feel it's all kind of um, if you're touching the app or the product or the service, I, you're, you can call yourself a designer because you're all contributing, in my opinion. <laughs> you know, but uh, I think in that regard, it's like it's. Uh, I'm trying to think about what's that Al Pacino movie where he's the devil, devil's advocate, maybe or. Well, so yeah. it's like when at the very end when he's like, oh, pride, it's my favorite sin. I, I just feel <laughs> like it's like it's a commandment. Like number one commandment is like you are not your user. Everyone knows this. You should know this. But it's the number one thing that's always the funnest to break and everyone breaks it, you know, or doesn't follow it. On uh, number 11, kill number 11 is I would kill to understand this data funny how we keep coming back to data related uh, <laughs> it actually and I, I meant to mention this about personas too and when we were talking about like what you know about people and i was going to throw back to that uh, section about how well do you know it uh it, it really talks to like how intertwined all of these things are and how interconnected they are and, and why they matter so much because there's so much living tissue to sort of this whole industry um which gets really weird and philosophical so i apologize i blame the the pepsi and rum and pepsi um <laughs> anyway kill yourself if or i would kill to understand the, the data analytics measurements and metrics i i i like this one because i i think that it's a lot of people like especially when google analytics first came out everybody did it and everybody collects the data but i i think that there's the other side of that, which is you have to have some kind of plan or an experiment or some kind of strategy that you're using with that data to actually give it context and application. Um, is and, anyone looking at it ever? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, even even if you're looking at it, it's like like you mentioned earlier in the show, like the page views and everything. Like, who the fuck cares? Like, okay, look, we have a number and now it's bigger. Okay, that's cool. Um, is that is that an OKR? Like, like, are we trying to increase growth? Um, I would presume so, but like, maybe there's other things that are more important. One of my favorite like analytics talks I've ever seen. Um, do you know Avinash Kaushik? I've heard the name, but he, I... he's I don't know what he's doing now. I know like he was he was like one of the lead data uh, data science advocates at Google for a while or something like that. The the dude's brilliant and wrote some of the original books on web analytics and stuff. Hmm. Um, but he was giving a presentation about Google analytics and was talking about real time analytics. Cause this was a new feature that had just come out. You could open up the real time dashboard and see all this stuff happening on your webpage. And he, and he was like, that's the most useless thing in the world because there's nobody sitting in this room, listening to this talk who is prepared or capable of <laughs> reacting to that data in real time. So outside of it being, you know, 
for me, like it's great for testing. Like I can confirm immediately that something worked on my site, but that idea of how, you know, how do you make that data be useful if you can't react to it in real time? It's just pretty. It's, you know, it's a management feature at that point. I, I like the, I put it, I put a note in here. Um, metrics provide you with experimental data that you can support or fail to support hypothesis colon fuck around and find out. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite description of science. <laughs> we're, we're in, we're in the kill section, not the fuck around section. Whatever, man. <laughs> now the show's all topsy-turvy. <laughs> so our last, uh, our last section to hit on before we get out of here for kill is number 13. And this just felt like the right place to end, which is, will we get killed if we aren't accessible? (laughs) (laughs) And you started it, Tim, at the top of the show, you talked about how accessibility tends to get lumped in with usability. Um, And it is accessibility is usability and, and vice versa, you know, making a site accessible is inherent to making it usable. Um, for the population at at large. And I think one of the traps that anybody falls into, especially small to mid-tier companies, they fail to address accessibility because they don't understand the risk proposition. And they run into sort of this false affirmation that, well, blind users don't use our product, so we (laughs) we just don't care. They're not not big enough and – like to get to you know what success looks like and and value scales and things like that. Well, that blind user isn't going to be worth enough money to us, um, which is great until it costs them money, and it yeah. may not get you in a week. It may not get you in a year. Probably going to get you at some point. Oh, I I I, I know you're right, but I really hate that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't even think it. Uh, I think a lot of times, right higher education institutions, government institutions, and even now most companies at some level have to have like some accessibility compliance, either from a a lawsuit fear or consumer rights or, you know, the WCAG, you know, 2.0 or Accessibility Act. Um, And people always, I think that's the thing. People only think of it like from the like, oh, they're going to come back and snap us on the hand or we're going to get sued or something. But, uh, I think of it like from the scary other side, um, the dark side of like where UX goes bad, not dark patterns, but like when you look or Google search for like UX problems that cause disasters, right? To where power plants that don't have buttons in the right place or, or um, controls on ships or planes that are not, um, forthcoming or, and or confusing or, you know, things that cause problems, right? That back to that abusability test thing to where people don't realize how bad it could go. Instead of just mitigating, okay, we'll kick this can down the road and we'll install Axe or something so our developers can push code that meets uh, AA compliance and has some ARIA roles and, and we'll meet it to mitigate lawsuits. It's like, well, t- well have you plugged in peripheral devices? Have you actually used one mm. of those text to type machines like with your application? Um, have you ever used like JAWS or even on the server side, there's things like site improve or compliance sheriff yeah. that like will scan and really tell you like, Hey, your code does look good. And, but your tab order is off. Like a, a blind person can't get through this in a way that makes any sense or, 
or um or things of that nature. And it's like to, the 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 spirit of accessibility versus the letter of accessibility, right? Yeah. And I I've sat and had subject matter experts, and at Lidos Lidos is um their their claim to fame is the the number one government contractor for the United States government. So we do a lot of work with armed forces and homeland security and veteran Department of Veteran Affairs. And I can tell you how many times to where someone, an SME, a subject matter expert or a product manager or someone has said like, well, we wouldn't do that. There aren't blind soldiers in the army and blind soldiers would never do. And then when you actually are on base talking to them and it's like, oh yeah, we're colorblind. Uh, yeah, we just have to fill out this form <laughs> that says that we can work on it. And then, and so it's like, well, I'm building a product that coordinates you know, combat maneuvers or something and a wrong button can do this and, and can create this bad scenario. And so just because um, it's that mindset which you were speaking to, which is, well, blind people don't use it or colorblind people won't use this or do we even care if we lose money on them? And it's like, uh, well, look at the other <laughs> side of the coin, you know? Like, how do I get you to care about other people? <laughs> I don't know how to convince you to care about other people. There was oh. this show called The Care Bears. Did you ever watch it? They actually tried to facilitate empathy. And, you know, I was so. more of a Captain Planet man myself. I love Captain Planet. I, yeah. I, used to, I just watched, uh, like, in COVID-19, midsummer. I was like, I'm going to start watching that through. And I, and I started it from the beginning and started going through it. <laughs> Well, I hope everybody enjoyed today's episode. If you want to find your own copy of UX FMK, I couldn't uh, encourage you enough to go buy Amazon. We'll have a link in the show notes to it. There's a Kindle version of it if uh, you're a Kindle guy. I think, was there an ebook version of it? Refresh me on that one. I think there is, right? It's out for print, audiobook, and ebook. So you can listen to it or you can do it on your Kindle or whatever. Um, um, so it's a little bit everywhere. It's a little bit of, it's a little bit of everywhere, but um, that's, that's the best way to be, man. Make it anybody can find it wherever they want to use it. At that is usability. Aaron, I'm really thrilled because right now, Live at Manning is getting ready to do their next conference. We talked a little bit about math earlier on stuff because if you're doing UX research, if you're doing any kind of number crunching there you have to know a little bit about how to get to the good data right right that that was that was a question to you sir oh 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 right yes there you go okay we're we're, <laughs> we're in this for the long haul uh no it, the math for data science conference is coming up over at live at manning you can get a free ticket if you go by drunkenux.com slash math that's m-a-p-h they're going to be talking about data science they're going to be talking about artificial intelligence getting into cryptography, machine learning algorithms, um, and how all of this plays into all the programming fields that are out there. Um, if you're an analytics person, if you're a UX researcher, if you're a programmer, this stuff does matter because you, it will come back to you. Um, December 1st, uh, 12 to 5 p.m. This will be live streamed on Twitch. It is a free conference, but you do need to sign up to get a ticket. Hit us up at drunkenux.com math. Get yours. We look forward to seeing you there. Tim, again, thank you so much for sitting down with us tonight. Thanks for writing the book. I enjoyed the hell out of it. I love the fact that it's a very quick read. Um, it was 130 pages, 140 <laughs> pages, 129 pages, 100 and, uh, numbers, uh, numbered pages. 
Um, ben, I'm going to give the microphone over to you. Uh, take a few minutes. Tell everybody where they can find you, what you got going on, and anything else you want them to know. Yeah, so, I mean, I appreciate it being on the show. I, I love the podcast. Um, I think it has this great kind of two-person chemistry that, like, a lot <laughs> of compasts are great. So, uh, you can – I'm timbroadwater.com just um, is probably the best way to get to me. The book, UX FMK, is – it's available on Amazon um, for uh, Amazon Kindle. Uh, it's Audible and iTunes. There's keep a if you check out uh, my Twitter, which is UX Bear, one word on on Twitter. Um, I do like audiobook giveaways and free print book giveaways and things from time to time, and then it's also kind of connect with me uh, on Goodreads as well. Oh yeah, um, good call. Yeah, and then I think going forward, um, actually uh, here very soon, I'm I'm actually launching my own kind of consultancy like i've messed around in the past with businesses like a web design business or a media business or um and so but actually one of the things i've been working on apart from the book in COVID 19 times in 2020 is working on putting together um, a consultancy business it's going to be called something more appropriate than the title of the book <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's ux helping hand um, oh, and that's that's the nice. handle and then the website and the social media stuff that's forthcoming. Um, but it's kind of UX for nonprofits. It's, you know, kind Excellent. of helping, yeah, helping, really helping mentor nonprofits with UX and then helping those who are helping others. So, so UX okay. helping hand hopefully will be a thing here very soon. Awesome. And if anybody's looking either for his book or uh, some of the other stuff he mentioned, Agile is Dead or Why Your Startup is Failing, we'll leave links to all of those in our show notes, so run by there. Um, if you want to find us or chat with us about anything, you can always find us at Twitter or Facebook at slash DrunkenUX. We're on Instagram at slash Podcast, or come by Discord, DrunkenUX.com slash Discord will get you the invite. Uh, I find that to be way easier than the Discord.gg slash yeah all those letters uh, a lot of letters outside of that if you do pick up tim's book be sure to run by amazon and leave him a rating or review um tell him how much it's helped you or, or what you found most useful tell us what you find most useful i would love to mm -hmm. chat with you about uh, uh where we you and us align or didn't align on some of those topics otherwise i hope that uh you found this useful and helpful i think that there's a lot of little nuggets in here that that one of my favorite things about conferences and stuff is, you know, you go and you learn all this stuff and you go to all these talks and there's always all this information. And the key is always to find, you know, that one little chunk of something that's meaningful. And this book was full of all of those little chunks. Uh, and at the end of the day, uh, we're married to this. Um, you know, we're married to this industry, whether you are a developer, a designer, um, a researcher, <laughs> IA, content I writer, I don't care. Um, I'm already making Aaron laugh because he knows where I'm going because when <laughs> I start rambling, this is the way it works out because my other favorite marrying part is marrying your personas, which means you have to keep your personas close and your users closer. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.